If you'd like to buy your own copy of the American comic book industry in Hollywood, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Alyssa Perrin is Associate Professor in the Department of Radio, Television, Film and Co-Director of the Center for Entertainment and Media Industries at the University of Texas at Austin and an Editorial Collective Member of the Journal Media Industries. Gregory Starr is Associate Professor of English and Film Studies at Dickinson College and a former National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow and researcher for the Carsey Wolf Center's Media Industries Project. In part two of our episode on the American comic book industry in Hollywood, we'll be discussing how and why the comic book industry has retained its own practices and structure despite the conglomerization of media industries, how the industry has dealt with digital formats, different business models in comic publishers and being dependent on Hollywood licensing IP, and the future of the relationship between the American comic book industry and Hollywood. Take a listen. Why do you think that the comic book industry has retained its own particular practices and structure despite the way that media industries are are becoming these kind of mega conglomerates? I bet we both have different answers to this one or maybe the same (laughs) answer. But I mean, from my perspective, one of the things that was important to talk about in this book was the fact that conglomerates are hard to run. And so when you bring multiple companies together, that doesn't translate into suddenly like some kind of telepathy links them all into working in similar ways. Sometimes economists even have a term like organizational rigidity costs in terms of that when you actually bring in another company or buy it or try to merge it, it actually costs a lot of money to change the way it works and time. And sometimes you can't do it. And so one of the things that really interests me is the way that there's kind of a built-in limit to conglomerates' ability to radically transform another industry. They can work with an industry and through incentives kind of spur it in specific directions, which I do think we've seen happen with the comics industry. But in terms of sort of swallow it up and turn it into just kind of a lower cog in its own machine, it's actually quite hard to do. So that's the thing that interests me. Of course, there are also fans and longstanding practices and all these other things, people whose professional identities are attached to the comics industry. But the thing that interested me most was just the strange belief. And most of us work for big companies. What's possible is usually not that possible in terms of integrating companies and industries. Elisa, what do you think? would say that definitely is one factor. I also think it's a matter of You know, there's only really two cases that we're talking about (laughs) in terms of Marvel and DC, and they have very specific histories and specific cultures. And also, they're so small. I mean, one ongoing sort of debate that I've heard bandied about is, you know, the value for them is the IP for the conglomerates mainly, right? If you look at how much money these companies are making, it's negligible in terms of the comics themselves, right? It's all of this sort of licensing and merchandising and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a really robust industry in its own small little niche world. But I mean, part of it is whether those companies even need need to be part of the, whether these publishers need to even be part of these conglomerates. I think that we're seeing even now with streaming, for example, realizations that integration and consolidation and all of this doesn't work (laughs) yet again, or that, you know, 
getting into the tech business is hard and maybe you don't actually want to own and control everything yourself. And so there has been discussion. Will, you know, DC be spun off and published through someone else and they'll just hold on to the ownership? And I have no idea. I have no tea leaves to read. Who knows? But I think that speaks to the larger issues that Greg's getting at. And I just want to add and plug that one of the chapters Elisa took the lead on. Other comic companies do. One of the things they've looked towards Hollywood for and developed various kinds of business relationships is ways of getting funding in order to launch kind of their own television products. And that'll also be interesting to see what happens with that as the funding seems to be drying up right now as interest rates rise. So we may even see those kinds of publishers who were not Marvel in DC, but maybe turn back to, okay, that's not an option. Let's focus on publishing at the moment rather than these various kinds of transmedia deals that we're imagining. Yeah, I think something that you mentioned before with relation to that is you've talked about a little bit the different business models that comics publishers have formed besides, you know, the two big ones, Marvel and DC. One of them, for example, is Image Comics, and they've published a lot of my favourite ones, Wicked and the Divine, Saga, etc. But that is, I think, as you've talked about, it can be quite difficult. Like, the rewards are great if it goes well, but it can also be quite a difficult one because you have to do almost everything. It's not just the writing and the artistry and the inks and lettering and so on. It's It, it can also be the, the marketing and so on and so forth. And that can be quite difficult. So you have to be willing to do all of that yourself. Could you talk a bit about some of the other models that comics publishers have besides, you know, being a traditional comic book publisher like Marvel and DC and some other some other presses and also, you know, besides the model that, that Mitch has, which is quite different? Sure. So those are kind of the two extremes, the work for hire model that Marvel and DC has, and then images model, which like you said, the creators have to do almost all the work and then see if they get lucky. And often they do, but that's the model. In between there, we call it co-ownership. And this was the phrase that Ross Ritchie at Boom used to describe what Boom does. And in that model, the idea is to have both the creators and the publisher have skin in the game. So they usually split ownership of the comic. At Boom, it's 50-50, or at least it, it has been. And so it could be a little different at different companies. But the point is that that gives an incentive to the publisher for the comic to do well and to try to license it in various ways. And then also gives the writer, artist, letter, those people, a basic pay that's similar to the work-for-hire model, usually a little lower, even if the comic doesn't do well, they're still getting enough to live off of. And so that model, I think, is is the dominant model across the industry now. And it varies slightly in its details but all of the different publishers. But their work for hire model is also used by those same publishers. So Boom publishes like WWE comics and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers comics. And those, it doesn't own the rights to those. So those it hires creators to work on them on a work-for-hire model. So we kind of get a merging in the companies. So I think those are the models. And then many of them, like Dark Horse, and Elisa uh, could talk about this, have also then set up other wings of the publish, not of the publisher, in order to get profit in other ways through merchandise or rights licensing. And those can be quite complicated too. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the sort of main points there really well, Greg. The licensed comics, I think, is a dimension that people tend to really gloss over or ignore because 
they aren't the sexy ones a lot of the times, you know, the Buffy comics, the alien comics, what have you. But for a lot of the smaller publishers, they're really crucial and they're an example of the different dimension of the Hollywood comics relationship that has its own degree of complexity as well, right? Because when you enter into that space, a lot of times you have to get the approvals of the the talent that's involved in terms of likenesses and things like that. And to varying degrees, different people that are involved, say with the shows or movies or original IP, weigh in along the way. So that's kind of a fascinating dimension there. Something that that interests me in the book, you talk about how the comic book industry has responded to the availability of content in digital formats. And I was wondering how that might compare with what's happened in book publishing. So for example, there was a period when some book publishers were trying out, they thought, wow, we've got this amazing new medium for um, publishing book content. So we must take advantage of that. And they were trying out things like enhanced ebooks with all kinds of clever audio and moving image features, or they're making apps out of books. But then they came to realize that they could never charge enough for these books in terms of what consumers expected to pay to compensate for the development costs. So they went back to just regular text ebooks or, or for some books, uh, PDF formats. Is there something similar that's happening in comic books that, you know, there's been an attempt to kind of do something different digitally, but a kind of realization that maybe that doesn't work? Yeah, Rebecca, I think it's the exact same. <laughs> there has been historically those exact same efforts. Marvel has done it. Other companies that are no longer with us, like CrossGen, to create these comics that had sound effects, moving angles, like different things you could do. But they cost much more than they justified. They couldn't get returns on them, nor if they made a comic that way, could they then offer it in a print version without telling even more cost to translate it into some other kind of version. New companies keep showing up that endeavor to do this, but they almost all go bankrupt or stop or change what they're doing after a few years. So at the moment, I don't think there's any company trying to do this. I could be wrong. I think the last one whose name is I'm blanking on, I think has stopped over the last few years. But I think the broader point here is that the comics industry has largely followed the book industry and how digital has worked, meaning that Contrary to everyone's expectations, digital is only a small portion. It has not become the dominant mode of industry's publishing revenue. I think the one difference might be that because maybe comics are such a marginal industry, that there weren't those early tussles with Amazon, which involved Amazon really discounting the prices and sort of for a little while wrecking the publishing industry's model when it came to ebooks. So the comic publishers maintained a lot more control over the price that their comics could be sold at. So I think that's one of the main differences. But where we are today, I think almost identical, even the fact that Amazon is the company that owns the main, really the only digital comic book platform. IP comicsology. It's not dead, but it may as well be, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah you got to update your chapter, Greg, on that. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> I found that really interesting when I was reading that that chapter because I was wondering about the history of that because for a little while I had, I had Comixology and I didn't read a lot of comics through that app partly because I did like the physicality of it. In a way, I think that is, you know, Rebecca, I think, you know, this like the last couple of years in trade publishing, 
there's been a real kind of like, if there is money to be put into a book, people will really go for the design because, you know, you've got to give the consumers, you know, money for, they could be spending £20 on a hardback. So if you're going to be spending that much, you, you want like a really nice book to hold. But with regards to like comics, there's also, you know, the art. That doesn't necessarily mean that you get like a paperback collection of like six comics and it's going to be quite as beautiful as like a trade, a book. You know, because of the art, I think like a lot of readers will probably like still value the physicality of that. I think in a way that people trying to capitalise on like digital formats of comics perhaps didn't realise. On the other hand, Amazon bought Comicsology ages ago and now from what i've heard because i haven't used it in a while it's been is this right it's basically been like put they've merged it with the kindle app that's right yeah (laughs) yeah that's probably not great i will say i do think amazon has maybe gotten a little unfair criticism in that it's been framed by the news recently as like a cost cutting measure and i do think it's been a little that but that's been their plan from day one they have talked about merging it they sent out notices to Comixology users like five years ago saying this was coming. So it's also it was just always their plan. Oh, well, I will say, I think actually like a something that I've just thought about with regard to digital formats and, and comics. And then I guess like a little related indirectly to what trade publishers in terms of books were trying to do with regards to sort of like animation and trying to make these kinds of jazzy digital formats for things like comics at at that point I kind of I kind of wonder as someone who also plays video games like that's just a video game in like in some respects you know like I'm just thinking of um the video game company Inkle has a game called 80 Days which is basically like an an adaptation of Jules Verne's you know 80 80 Days Around the World it might as well be like a you could call it a visual you could call it a visual novel you could call it you know a really jazzy like comic book that is you know hundreds of thousands of words long and has sound but in that case you're aiming at a a different audience even though there's maybe some overlap because it's it's a game it's not a comic in digital in digital format we are coming towards the the end of this interview sadly i was just wondering about where do you think the future of the relationship between the american comics industry and hollywood will evolve into. So with regard to Hollywood, at the moment, it feels like comics, the stories from comics are kind of having a huge impact on what gets made, what gets adapted, who gets hired. And then with regard to the comics industry, there is kind of like an increasing dependence, it feels like, on Hollywood licensing revenue. So how do you see the future of like this relationship going? Just a small question. Yeah, no, it, I mean, that's a million dollar question. It's funny because I don't know about you, Greg, but ever since we started writing this book, I feel like one of the questions I get from so many people is like, so when is this going to run out? Like, <laughs> when are we going to stop seeing all of these comics movies, which usually, again, is meant in terms of like superhero stuff, right? And I think that, you know, we've kind of alluded to some potential directions that might happen For example, I do wonder as the industry contracts now in terms of their production scale and scope, what the impact of that will be 
In terms of especially the smaller publishers that are licensing different types of things and the demand for that, if there's just going to be scaling back altogether or, you know, costs being significantly reduced, I think that's one question. I think in terms of the viability of, you know, comics, film and TV long term, you know, certainly there's been a lot of discussion about Marvel exhaustion, right? (laughs) And there's been a very uneven reception to a lot of that as more and more is released and it's not the clear sense of trajectory. But that being said, it seems to me like maybe there will be downsizing and model of like production of numbers, but it doesn't seem like that cross-fertilization, the reliance on the IP, the continued mining of characters, the continued codependency and continued returning to that is going to happen. I mean, you can think of things like people point to the Western or the musical that declined over time. And I don't know that how analogous that is. I'm skeptical, but I would just point to the fact that right now with DC Warners, it seems by all signs that for all the scaling back they're doing in some ways as a company, not just in terms of comics properties or like with Batgirl and whatnot, they're staking ever more in that universe of comics to film to TV. They've sort of made clear that they see that as the priority. David Zaslav, the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, has you know been very explicit about that. And that's part of the motivation for more of the stuff going theatrical versus whatever, and giving James Gunn kind of the keys to the kingdom to build this not just film TV, but also universe that's linking in, at least they're claiming, games, whatnot. Having said that, having traced the history of the efforts by Warners to deal with DC, it is a constant wave of fantasies and declarations and promises that are realized to varying degrees. And the integration continues to not entirely be there, right? So I guess that's to say dot, 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 we'll see. I don't know, Greg, what would you say? (laughs) I guess I have one thought and then one prediction. And the thought is that I really think that it's interesting in the comics industry itself, the publishing side, we're seeing a renaissance of the two genres that were really big in the 40s and early 50s, which are crime and horror. And I do think we're going to see more of those kind of properties be developed, particularly for television. They're also a lot cheaper to do than a superhero. So I do think the relationship between Hollywood and comics will continue, but may shift away from superheroes. But the other thing, I'm going to make a prediction, even though it flies in the face of what Warner Brothers has said. I actually think that the model that has dominated Hollywood and streaming for the last maybe 10 years is not going to last. And we're going to see Warner Brothers turn back to licensing their properties to other platforms. Now, even Disney did this in the beginning with its Marvel shows on Netflix. The economic model just makes way more sense that way. And if that does happen, I also think that we will see less shared universes, but more maybe interesting, quirky, also superhero shows and films, which Warner Brothers was kind of successful with before they tried creating a universe. 
Whether Disney joins in that, I'm not sure. But I see some of the platform exclusivity. I don't believe it's going to last. And that might provide a new input of funding to the more higher cost superhero adaptations. I could be wrong. So we'll discuss in 10 years and see where we are. (laughs) Yes, we'll see what happens. I also wonder if there is going to be unionization of VFX workers because that has been an issue that has been growing in newspaper, broadcast, like media coverage with regards to the exploitation of those workers by, you know, a lot of Hollywood companies, especially with regards to comics. So if we see that, that I think that's also going to impact on your prediction. So see what happens. I think that's a great point. And I think it speaks to just right now, we're on the cusp of a likely strike with the Writers Guild approaching. And the way that labor organizing is moving and how that impacts costs and assessments of what to produce or what budgets to allocate or how to license content is going to be really fascinating to see. Shall I finish up just by asking you both which comic book adaptations have particularly worked for you? And second part, is there a comic book that you would love to see adapted and why? I have to say Red, <laughs> though, as a film I love, which Cully Hamner, Elisa's partner, created. I think that is a wonderful film adaptation, partly because it takes a comic that was one thing and turns it into a very different kind of movie based on what Hollywood was interested in doing. In the TV realm, I think my favorite adaptation of all time remains Smallville, which took Superman and sort of turned it into a Dawson's Creek-like teen drama. And I think somehow managed to keep all of what was most beloved about Superman and that character while changing it to attract a new audience. In terms of the title I would most like to see adapted, I don't know. There's so much. I would love to see some of Rubiker's crime fiction, things like Pulp or his graphic novels turned into TV shows. I don't know if I could see them as films, but I think that would be really interesting. Elisa? So I would say, and it's not really an adaptation per se, so I'm cheating a little bit, but I really enjoyed the way that Watchmen, the HBO Watchmen, extended the sort of Watchmen world (laughs) that had been created in interesting ways. In terms of what I'd like to see adapted, I don't know that I have a great answer for that, but I am excited, and this is very self-serving, but Blue Beetle, I am interested to see, which is, full disclosure, Cully did do the reboot of the art on that, that the, the designs for that movie are based in part on. But I'm interested because it's the first Latinx superhero that's going to be released in theaters and really that we've seen period. And so I'm very excited to see and hopeful that we'll see something similar to what we saw with maybe not at the scale, but to a degree with Black Panther. As a kind of last reversal question, Rebecca and Ming, can you answer like what adaptation? It sounds like Ming, you read a lot of comics. Like what do you want to see? Ooh, I'm actually quite behind with some of the ones that I've been reading for a while before the last sort of like year or so. I don't know whether it can be adapted or even whether she want she wants it to be adapted, but I really love Monstrous by Marjorie Liu. Good one. And I think the artist is I can't remember if name, but Donna Sana Takeda perhaps. But like the art is just so like rich. I just really love like the world building of it as well. But it would be very cool to see someone attempt it. And I think 
the one that I would really, really love to see adapted, and they've talked about it possibly happening, but not. There's never been a confirmation, unfortunately. Is the Wicked and Divine by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey? It's just so fun, so fun. I can totally see that as like an HBO series. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to read graphic novels more than, and I was thinking while you were talking that is it right that if they get adapted, it's it's more as animations than live action. Maybe because they're not, they don't tend to be spectacular stories that you could add a lot of explosions and things. I really love, there's a, there's a graphic artist, Ros Chast, that is in fact published by Bloomsbury. I mean, I don't know that it would make an adaptation, but that's one of my favorites. Graphic novels, really moving story about her family and her parents kind of declining health. Oh, I so, love that story. Yeah, mm, it's great. Yeah, it's, I, in fact, I may not have it anymore because I lent it to someone. I think it's returned it, but yeah. Last question. Is there a comics creator that you think is the future of comics or could be? I think so. I think, you know, the one I keep coming back to is Simon Spurrier, who is a British comic writer. And his career path has just been so strange. He's written for most of the publishers. He was Alan Moore's Phil kind of took over, crossed 100 from Alan Moore, and he has this really versatile range, tends to create things that aren't easily adapted, but still fall in traditional fantasy, superhero, other kind of genres. And he hasn't seemed to jump on the kind of branding newsletter, like self-promotion wave. So I find him very interesting. He's also written some novels. So I think that the work he does might point to maybe more specific comic, what's interesting for comics, not necessarily their adaptations into film and TV. I haven't been keeping up, shall we say, with a lot of the more recent work since the book came out, but I know I've seen a lot of talk about James Tynan as one example, potentially just because of the sort of breadth of work he's doing. Speaking of Substack (laughs) newsletters, And sort of the variation in terms of genre, the different experiments with publishing and publishers. So that might be one potential person. Going to go Google both these people right now. Thank you so much for the recommendations and also for your time and the conversation. It was really great to have you on. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you. This was a lot of fun, yeah. And and I appreciate your sort of thoughtful questions. It's always nice when a fan is asking them. <laughs> Glad you appreciated them. 